The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday season and that you're enjoying the new year. Um, We certainly are in New Hampshire. We're inundated with... um, presidential candidates, and unseasonably warm weather. So uh, it's, it's, New Hampshire is a nice place to be right now. Um, our show today, I think you're all going to find really interesting. We're talking about <clears throat> the use of Internet technologies in medical practice and, and the ethics behind that. And I think you're going to find this very thought-provoking. Um, our guest today our, our host today and our guest today, I'm your host, David's our guest, is Dr. David Brindell, and he's published um, many articles and spoken extensively on the ethics of using online technology such as Google and Facebook in the clinical practice of medicine and psychiatry. Um, on our radio show today, he's going to talk to us about his insights into this um, relatively uh, new phenomenon and hopefully facilitate a discussion on the clinical and ethical issues relating to online social networking, online searching for patient information in medical and psychiatric practice. And I think um, in the, probably in the last three or four years, there's been an explosion of social media and a real drive to market through social media, to connect with people through social media. And um, Dr. Brindell, I just think that this is, um, you're, you're kind of starting off a, in a whole new, uh, a whole new area that I don't think much of us have given a lot of thought to. So, so welcome today and I look forward to our discussion. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so let's, can we begin by maybe like setting the stage in terms of, um, you know, social media in general and, and how we're using it in terms of connecting with our patients or in terms of, um, you know, treatment? Well, my fascination of this, with this topic dates back a few years. I, I teach uh, both medical students and uh, at the time had also been teaching psychiatric residents uh, a variety of issues in, uh, in medical ethics. And the students uh, in my seminar um, came to me and said, we want to talk about developing a little case vignette, which goes to a central question for us, which is what to do with our Facebook pages now that we've graduated from college and we're going on to uh, uh, very soon to be treating patients who may be looking us up on the Internet. And is it okay to have those photographs from the college graduation party on our Facebook pages anymore? What a doctor is doing about this? And I didn't really know the answer, so I started exploring it with them. And right around the same time, a couple of um, psychiatric residents who I was working with whose um, uh, work in this area, I should recognize them, Brian Clinton and Benjamin Silverman, they came to me and said, many of the 
uh, other residents we work with and doctors we work with Google their patients, whether they're uh, treating psychiatric inpatients or working in the emergency room or in an outpatient clinic, a whole variety of settings to get more information about patients. We're seeing clinicians going online and um, learning more information about them. What are the ethics of that? And I didn't know the answer to that one either, but I got very interested in both of these topics, both about online social networking and also using Internet search technologies to learn about patients. And um, with both the medical students and the residents I worked with, we... uh, we put some thought into this and published a couple of papers and got uh, a torrent of response uh, from other clinicians and from the media about this issue. Because uh, in the last few years, the technologies are exploding in our uh, knowledge uh, and understanding about how to use them in a clinical and ethically sound manner. Uh, it's, it's not quite keeping up. So... Uh, I really value the opportunity to uh, to write about and to discuss these issues in venues like this one. So, um, what what is ethical? I guess that's the easiest thing to ask. What is ethical and what isn't ethical? Well, I think what we what we discovered um, in thinking about this carefully on the Googling site, and we came up with the uh, with the acronym PTG to uh, refer to patient-targeted Googling, uh, is that there is no absolute answer we can give to this. There are, there are cases where it is probably ethically required to do a Google search on uh, uncertain patients. For example, if uh, an obtunded or unconscious patient is brought into the emergency department uh, with no personal identifying information except perhaps a name and an address, and some important medical decisions need to be made in that setting that may, uh, uh, in fact, be life-saving, it would be useful to be able to locate um, uh, additional information about the patient and possibly be able to bring in uh, surrogate decision-makers. And so, uh, and I do know of a number of cases where uh, in emergency rooms and on inpatient units, this kind of additional information was discovered about a patient. Uh, Family members were brought in and some important decision uh, making was made. So uh, at one end of the spectrum, we might say that patient-targeted Googling might be ethically required in certain rare uh, emergency situations. At the other end of the spectrum, it's ethically questionable or perhaps should be prohibited when we're just talking about uh, clinician curiosity or voyeurism about a patient that may be particularly appealing or attractive to the clinician. In that case, uh, the the search should not be done uh, because it's sort of wrong in itself and uh, may constitute a significant privacy violation. That's another extreme end of the spectrum. The vast majority of cases are in a gray area ethically and requires some real careful thought. And uh, the people I worked with and published the papers on ended up taking uh, a very pragmatic approach to, um, uh, to this whole scenario. What we tried to do, both in the Googling situation and also um, with regard to what clinicians should or should not put on uh, Facebook pages, is a set of questions that 
uh, clinicians should very carefully ask themselves before engaging in any any of this kind of behavior. So we don't know what the uh, what the right answer in each case is, but we are beginning to discover what sort of thought process should go into uh, into making the decisions. And I'm happy to describe that in some more detail. Okay, um, go for it. Okay. Well, in, in terms of patient uh, targeted Googling, in, in some ways the most important thing is to get clinicians, and especially trainees and young clinicians who are used to Googling just about everything in their life. Nobody uh, goes on a date or goes to a restaurant without Googling the person or Googling the restaurant uh, these days. And so what we want to do, though, with clinicians uh, approaching this issue uh, with their patients is to slow the process down. We don't want people just immediately Googling every patient that uh, they have seen or are about to see. So the first question to ask oneself is, why do I want to Google this patient? Seems like a very simple question, but not all clinicians, uh, and certainly not many younger clinicians or trainees are asking that question before they engage in the activity. If the answer to that question, uh, as I said before, goes mostly to curiosity or voyeurism, just uh, clinician self-interest, the search probably should not be done. But if the clinician uh, thinks that there may be some reason that is in the patient's best interest for a Google search to occur, then it's reasonable to go forward to asking the other five questions. The second question that we encourage clinicians to ask is, will my internet search for patient information advance or compromise a particular treatment? Uh, and this may be somewhat speculative. It's, it's not, necess- not necessarily going to be uh, uh, possible to answer the question correctly in all cases, but the, the process of uh, reflection and asking this question is, is very important. In some cases, the the clinician is going to be able to predict that um, he or she might obtain information that really would be best left, uh, you know, unknown. Uh, For example, the uh, clinician might discover some information that is uh, that feels like a real intrusion to to the patient. Uh, might discover uh, photographs of the patient, might discover something about their personal affairs that they, that they really didn't want to know and don't know what to, uh, you know what to do with the information. And if the patient finds out about it, uh, uh, he or she might, find, might feel ex, you know, extremely violated. So if, if you can predict that the Google search is going to compromise the treatment, it obviously should not be done. If there's a genuine thought that uh, searching for the information is going to advance the treatment, then it's reasonable to go on to ask the next set of questions. Really, the third, uh, the third issue revolves around informed consent. Before uh, engaging in patient-targeted Googling, the clinician should, should ask, do I want to get informed consent for the search from the patient? Now, now again, we... Uh, in the work we've done so far, we have not come down uh, in an absolute uh, way on whether consent should or should not be obtained. In some cases, it probably should. 
In other cases, it's not necessary and maybe should be avoided. But the question should at least be pondered. Do I want to check with the patient about whether it's okay to do uh, uh, an Internet search on his or her name? Uh, and again, I should point out here that, that we're, we're only talking about searching for information that's easily available in search engines like Google. We're not talking about breaking any laws. We're just talking about um, looking for information that's easily available in the public domain. And we shall, we'll continue this right after our uh, station break. So um, we'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. There are a number of health and social services available to individuals for low cost or no cost. Now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need. Tune in to Outreach Today with host Melissa Jenkins-Simon. Our program promotes the benefits and services of CI Incorporated, providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies. We want to help you. Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and today we're talking about the ethics of using Internet technologies in medical practice, psychiatric practice, and behavioral health care. And our guest today is Dr. David Brindell, who practices psychiatry in Boston and teaches ethics and professionalism at Harvard Medical School. He has written and spoken extensively on the ethics of integrating scientific and humanistic approaches in psychiatric practice. His book, Healing Psychiatry, Bridging the Science, Humanism Divide was published by the MIT Press in 2006 and was released in paperback in 2009. He has also written and published on ethics of using online technology such as Google and Facebook in contemporary medical and psychiatric practice. And before going to break, um, Dr. Brindell was sharing with us um, some standard questions that we should think about before we... Um, go ahead and try to Google one of our uh, patients or clients. So, uh, Dr. Brindell, you were halfway through before we went to break. So, Yes, and I was really describing in many ways what I would call the moral psychology of patient-targeted Googling. It's the set of um, uh, questions uh, that clinicians should be asking themselves in an open-minded and reflective way before actually engaging in the activity. 
I, I don't have absolute prohibitions on, on any of this behavior uh, in terms of searching, but uh, the, the, thought, the thoughtfulness uh, and the process of asking oneself uh, these questions is really what counts most. So we started with the question of, you know, why would, why would I as a clinician want to Google this patient? Is it in the patient's best interest? Might it advance the, uh, the treatment of the patient? And once considering the, the, the possibility of seeking informed consent before engaging in the Internet search, we're on to uh, the fourth, fifth, and sixth questions that I uh, consider essential. The fourth question is, once I do the Internet search, will I disclose the findings with the patient. Uh, and I've known of a number of cases where this has become a significant issue. Uh, a clinician goes on, to, uh, goes on to Google or onto Facebook and sees um, that the patient is smoking cigarettes or consuming alcohol, uh, even though uh, that patient has told the clinician that he or she doesn't engage in that behavior. Now what are you going to do as the doctor? Are you going to confront the patient about it? Are you going to uh, 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 bring it up with them or ignore it? Are you going to document it in the medical record? Um, so it's worth thinking in advance, once I do the Internet search, am I going to disclose the findings to the patient? What if the patient has a blog uh, and is talking uh, on the blog about suicidal thoughts or about homicidal thoughts? Um, once you've done the search, you now may be uh, into a situ situation where you have to disclose the findings to the patient or possibly to others, including the police, uh, if you um, find information that is particularly troubling uh, or uh, raises major safety issues. So it's really worth thinking before doing the search about what uh, is going to be done with that information. Uh, afterwards. Similarly, in question, question five revolves around the question about documenting this information in the medical record. I think there's a real debate in uh, psychiatry, in general medicine, uh, that has not been fully worked out uh, uh, in a medical legal uh, fashion about whether this kind of information that's not provided by the patient uh, but that is discovered by the clinician should be entered uh, into the medical record. Uh, and this may involve various uh, health-related behaviors such as smoking. It may involve uh, issues with regard to safety uh, concerns such as suicidality or homicidality. And then question six uh, is how do I decide when to stop searching? If a patient, for example, does have a blog uh, and has written about her suicidal ideation or suicidal uh, behaviors before, and the clinician is now aware of the blog, either because the patient mentioned the blog or because the clinician found out about the blog just by doing an Internet search, is the clinician now obligated uh, or allowed to continue to follow the blog? You can imagine how time-consuming that might be with more and more patients having blogs. But we can imagine a scenario where a, a patient might be uh, writing about intermittent suicidal ideation or intermittent homicidal ideation and then begins to formulate a very distinct plan to hurt himself or to kill somebody else 
And if the clinician has been periodically following the blog, but not religiously following the blog, you could imagine a scenario where um, that information is available to the clinician, but is now missed or ignored. Uh, and uh, if there is a bad outcome, we could uh, imagine a scenario where ethically and medical legally the clinician may be held responsible. This Again, this, none of this has been worked out legally yet, but I would predict that in the coming years we are going to see cases like this. And so thinking you know, very carefully about whether we as individuals and we as a, as, uh, as a profession as a whole want to be uh, engaging in this kind of activity is, is critical at this moment. You know, you can really see both sides of it because on one hand you may be able to garner information that, that people are, are writing about but not necessarily are comfortable talking about that may help them. But on the other hand, that's a tremendous responsibility because if you're going to, as you said, if you're going to start monitoring somebody's blog, I would think then you would have a responsibility to monitor it all the time. Yes. Um, And and, and that would be significantly time-consuming. Probably unrealistic also to be monitoring it um, uh, on on such a frequent basis. On the other hand, if there's important information about a patient that's available out there on the Internet, information that may be life-saving, how can we as as physicians say, we are not going to even look. We're going to turn our backs on it. Right. Um, I think it, it, that kind of approach may feel and sound safer in, in the moment, but it also uh, cuts us off from important sources of information and really excludes us from um, new and important ways in which people are communicating in the Internet era. Well, and I think, you know, certainly in the high-profile cases where somebody has a significant mental illness and does something, you know, the, you know, they start to attack people or they take a gun and they start shooting people, the first thing the media does is go to their Facebook or, their, or whatever blogs they have to look at what they've been saying. And, and then they'll often point out, well, you know, this has been going on. They've been saying this and, and nobody's seen it, that, that nobody saw it that felt like they needed to do something about it. I, and, and, and perhaps the right thing is to not be looking for us as uh, physicians uh, into that information, but it's not very difficult to imagine um, a, a lawsuit at some point right. where something terrible has happened. The media was you know, e- easily able to find the postings on the right. Internet and is going to uh, bring clinicians and perhaps other professionals such as Um, teachers, school principals, put them on the stand and say, how could you not have known this? All it involved was a simple Internet search. Right. Well, you know, one of the things that that we're beginning to realize working with young college-age students is their use of social media is so much different than um, today than it was 10 years ago, and being able to assess someone's use of social media, the amount of time they, they spend on it, their perception of what are friends, yeah. Um, it, it requires like a, a, an assessment in and of itself. So then if you take that one step further and you start asking people, well, do you have a blog? You know, would you have a, you know, what do you have on Facebook? Do I have your permission to, to view this? Then, um, 
that doesn't seem that that seems like that's a liability there as well. You know. Yes, I I I think that's that's true, and we we do have to think carefully about whether we want to um, ask patients for their permission to to uh, look at these sites, whether we want to just do it on our own. And in many situations I've dealt with in my own practice, people have come in and they've said, do you have the Internet in this office? Google me or let me show you my Facebook page. I really want you to um, take a look. This is the most important thing that's going on in my life right now. Um, So I think it would be naive for us as clinicians to say that we can avoid this entirely. I think it's not a question of if um, physicians are going to be interacting with um, uh, social networking sites and uh, search engines, and more a question of you know uh, how we're going to uh, do it, and can we do this in a in a way which is thoughtful and proactive. I, I think we're better off as a medical community thinking about um, standards and principles for how to go about this rather than just waiting for bad things to happen and have uh, lawsuits and regulations um, put onto medical practice from outside the profession. Yeah, I, th- I totally agree with that. I think one of the other things that we've, we've also learned is that, you know, um, if somebody's applying for a job, um, we'll often look and see if they have a Facebook page and see what's on it. So if we look on somebody's Facebook page and it shows them at a frat parties and, you know, they, they look like they're having a great time or they've got, you know, a joint hanging out of their hand or whatever, we won't hire them, you know. And I, and I think that there also has to be information to, to young people about be careful what you put on these pages because people, other people will be looking, you know. Um, prospective dates may be looking or, you know, um, employee, possible employers may be looking. I think that's yeah. an excellent point, that there should not be any presumption of privacy on the Internet, either on the patient side or on the uh, on the physician side at this point. Um, I've talked to a number of um, physicians who have uh, Facebook pages and uh, have believed that the privacy settings on Facebook would uh, would prevent patients or other other people they work with from finding information about them. But the the uh, privacy setting standards on Facebook and similar uh, similar sites keep changing, and they're, they're and and they're very very imperfect. So as as physicians we are best off thinking that anything we post on our Facebook page is potentially uh, accessible uh, to our patients. And I, I guess we might want to uh, even let patients <laughs> know something very similar, that um, there, there may be a new standard emerging that even as a patient, you can't presume that the only information your clinician Oh, for that matter, your employer or your insurance company might get about you is what you provide. Uh, when things are easily searchable and are in the public domain, um, it's worth taking extra care. And we'll be right back to talk more about this fascinating subject after this commercial break. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our show today is about the ethics of using Internet technologies in our medical practice, our behavioral health practice. Um, and our guest is Dr. David Brindell, who practices psychiatry in the Boston area and teaches ethics and professionalism at Harvard Medical School. Um, it's You know, this is just fascinating because... We have the federal confidentiality laws that are very, very tight laws that protect people who are getting treatment for substance use disorders. We have confidentiality laws for for medical care. We have HIPAA, which, as you said during the break, is really kind of an oxymoron for confidentiality laws. So, And people are very concerned about their, their confidentiality around their medical care, but then they put all kinds of things on Facebook that... Um, uh, you know, you wonder, do they think like no one's reading it or do they, they think it's just between them and, and the people they're friends with? Um, it, it's really a shift in, in how people perceive privacy. I, I absolutely agree. And, it, and there has been a lot of naivete about that um, up until now. Um, I think that that may be starting to shift uh, as... Um, more and more stories emerge about um, uh, privacy violations uh, on these sites, uh, and people are becoming more careful about uh, their online presence and their online reputation. Uh, for physicians and, and other professionals as well, there's uh, you know there's this rise of uh, online reputation management companies. It's possible to hire an internet firm to monitor how you're doing online in terms of uh, uh, reputation issues. And uh, there are ways uh, to, uh, to enhance 
the positives and suppress any negatives about you as a physician or as a person um, on the Internet. There was an article published in the Journal of the American Medical Association a few years ago by a couple of psychiatrists at Mass General Hospital which uh, described some of these uh, some of these strategies for suppressing any negative reviews that might be written about clinicians, at least getting them off the first or second page uh, of of Google. So I think this is an area that is uh, uh, still in its infancy, but is really taking off uh, in, in the consciousness of uh, clinicians and others in terms of uh, reputation protection. It's best to presume that anything we place on the Internet is going to be accessible to our patients and virtually anybody else who might be interested uh, in getting that information. But there is a lot of information on the Internet that we obviously can't control. Um, We can control whether or not we have a Facebook page and what we put on it, but we can't control uh, if a patient goes online and writes a negative review on one of the uh, doctor rating sites uh, or if something else gets gets into somebody's blog or into a newspaper and then goes viral. So there's only a certain amount of control that we do have, but it is worth exercising that control when we can. I'd like to go back to one of the things you talked about in an earlier segment about if we're working with somebody who is... um, his thoughts of suicide, his, his uh, past history of attempting suicide. Um, should we be assessing for what type of social media they're using, if they have a blog? I mean, should that be part of our assessment? And should we be monitoring people who we know have a strong uh, risk for uh, suicide? Well, I think it's an excellent question, and I think that the... Uh, the topic is still new enough that it requires a lot of discussion uh, in the field. And I don't have an answer for all cases. I don't know that we need to be building questions about social media into our initial assessment of every single patient. On the other hand, to not be aware of social media use with certain types of patients, uh, I think, could be could be negligent. Uh, So a lot of clinical judgment is needed about this and a lot of discussion among uh, uh, professional associations and societies about trying to formulate certain standards in the coming years I I, I think is is very important. Um, For the moment, I think the individual clinician is going to be best served by using a certain uh, structured set of questions like the ones that we uh, developed in our Harvard Review of Psychiatry paper and that I described earlier in the show. Yeah, I'm also wondering too about, um, especially with Facebook, if let's say I go and have, um, I don't know, a rhinoplasty done and um, I really hit it off with the ear, nose, and throat doctor. And, um, you know, we, we start to talk. And then a couple months later, I find him on Facebook, and we start having this non-patient-client uh, relationship on Facebook. Is that ethical? I mean, you know, what, that, that's a whole other thing, you know. It's, it's dangerous, uh, uh, and it's concerning. It's, 
I mean, traditional medical ethics has known for a long time that the that the uh, professional boundary between patient and doctor can uh, can break down and has broken down um, uh, in many cases, though not all, to the detriment of patients and and clinicians. The internet provides a, a certain kind of ease and convenience and anonymity for that happening even more. So. How we interact with patients uh, uh, on the internet, on email, uh, is still an urgent matter, and I think it is has become sort of the primary area where uh, uh, patient-doctor boundaries and the ethics of those boundaries is uh, is most in play and least worked out at this point. Well, especially like with young clinicians, like people who are, you know, interns or residents or are going to college and they're doing internships. I mean, social media is how they all talk to each other. So do they even stop to think about that, wow, this isn't appropriate for me to be contacting this person or reminding this person of their appointment through this venue? Yeah, I'm really, well, I'm really glad you asked that question because it, it makes me think back to those uh, medical students that I was working with a few years ago. I was teaching a seminar. There were about a dozen students in the class, and they developed uh, a clinical vignette very similar to the one that you're talking about. Uh, a young woman moves to a new city. She starts with a primary care doctor uh, who's a single man, a few years older than her. Uh, and she comes in for basically a, uh, an initial appointment to establish a relationship with a primary care doctor, and they hit it off, and they're talking about restaurants and clubs in the city and music they like. Uh, and he gives her his card, which happens to have his email address on it. Uh, though I think even if you don't want to give out your email address, patients can find it these days, especially if you're affiliated with a hospital or an academic institution. And in any case, in this, uh, in this vignette, the young woman patient uh, later that evening sends an email to the male clinician uh, saying, it's great to meet you. I'd like to send you a friend invitation on Facebook. You know, click this link below. Um, and the fascinating thing to me among this group, all of whom were active Facebook users, all uh, first, first and second year medical students, um, they didn't see it as a problem that this uh, uh, young male physician would accept the friending invitation from the young woman. That was not an ethical nodal point for them because I think it's so common and done without much uh, uh, worry or thought uh, at this point. So educating, we need younger uh, clinicians and medical students and residents to educate older clinicians about what's happening on the Internet so that there can be some discussion uh, about whether this is appropriate. And then I think the, uh, the older and more experienced clinicians need to be able to say, I don't use Facebook, I don't understand Facebook, but I can tell you that I don't think accepting that friend invitation is the way to go. There is a disconnect right now between the older generation, which has wisdom about the patient-doctor relationship, uh, but not facility uh, or knowledge about the Internet technologies, and the younger generation of trainees and very young clinicians who 
uh, need mentorship and guidance in this area, uh, but aren't able to uh, get it in all cases because the the area in ethical question is an area that their uh, mentors don't very, know very much about, and that's the internet technologies and the social networking. Yeah, it also brings to mind a case where um, some college students and that uh, college students that we know of down in the Boston area who um, was pretty isolated and depressed and was doing all of his social interacting through social media and had started to talk about feeling depressed and feeling suicidal and um, and he he finally got to the point where he sought help or help was intervened and they they were doing the assessment and they said well what about your friends and he said I have 400 friends none of whom he'd ever seen before and one of the friends turned out to be the um, one of the college counselors but it was somebody who had friended him on Facebook so you know you don't know when you friend somebody what that means to that person either you know no no that's I think that's a that's an excellent point and uh, and there is the friends of friends question. Uh, I, I'm I'm not a very active Facebook user. I just have some. Uh, I have a presence on Facebook, which links to um, a website about my practice. But uh, there's no personal information there. But my understanding is that uh, even if you don't want to friend somebody or receive a friending in, uh, or accept a friending invitation from them. Uh, if you both have a mutual friend, in some cases there are ways for uh, uh, people to navigate onto your site or for you to navigate onto theirs even though it wasn't intended. So that may be, uh, there may be evolving standards uh, about that kind of thing at Facebook and, and, and on similar sites uh, or just glitches in the technology. But again, I think it goes back to what we said before, the presumption should be that if you put it on the Internet, it's not private. And we'll be right back after this commercial for our final segment. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. David Brindell, who 
practices psychiatry in the Boston area and teaches ethics and professionalism at Harvard Medical School. And we're talking today about the ethics of using Internet technologies in medical practice. Um, Dr. Brindell, where can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more or they, if they want to connect with you? Uh well, it's, it may be ironic that I'm uh, cautioning people about using the Internet technologies, uh, but I do have a website, and it's www.drdavidbrendel.com, D-R-D-A-V-I-D-B-R-E-N-D-E-L.com, or uh, email is david at drdavidbrendel.com. And I'm always interested in hearing people's uh, thoughts uh, and experiences with this. It's such a new and intriguing uh, area that still uh, requires a lot of discussion among clinicians and uh, other interested parties. So um, can you enlighten us with some of your more recent um, experiences with this? Well, yeah, there's there are a couple of cases that come to mind that I think... Uh, He'll put in perspective that there's no way to avoid this problem. I, I know whenever I've given talks on this, there's always a number, at least one or two, sometimes more people in the audience who say, well, I'm just not going to email patients. I'm not going to search for them. I'm not going to have a Facebook page. I just want to avoid the whole thing entirely. And uh, a clinician that um, I know of uh, did not give out his email address or interact in any way with this particular patient that I'm going to describe. Uh, there was no interaction on the Internet. But one day he received uh, an email with photographs of her arms cut. She had borderline personality disorder and was cutting her arms with a knife, took photographs of them, found his email address by doing a Google search, even though he had never given it to her. It was not on his card or ever provided. And then he opened up his email and right there are, are photographs uh, of her arms cut up and a message uh, from him. So scenarios like that, I think, make it pretty clear that it's becoming less and less possible to avoid dealing with these questions. Now, if a clinician gets, uh, uh, gets an email like that, he may feel reassured that the cuts were just superficial and it was just a provocation and there's not much to do. On the other hand, the cutting may be very concerning and may speak to um, some severe suicidality and could require sending the police or an ambulance out to the patient's home. So many of our clinical decisions now are revolving around uh, issues with the Internet, whether we want it or not. You know, um, I think a, I think a lot of people like I. I don't have a Facebook account, and I have LinkedIn because somebody here at work signed me up for it, who's much younger than I am, and I do nothing but like accept a connection if I know the person, and um, and I think, well, gee, this is kind of safe because I'm really not being active in this. But I guess just the fact that I'm on LinkedIn makes me vulnerable, right? Because somebody could find me. That, yes, that, that is possible, and, I, and I've, I've had um, patients in my own practice. I, I also am signed up on LinkedIn. I don't have a lot of information about their just basic contact information, uh, address, email, that kind of thing. 
And I have received LinkedIn invitations from many patients who I've seen. Um, all they have to do is have a LinkedIn account themselves right. uh, and go on to LinkedIn and put your name in, and they, they see that there's David Brendel, MD, PhD in Belmont, Massachusetts. Let me invite him. Yeah. Uh, and in some ways, it is very it is very similar to Facebook. It creates a different kind of connection and potential interaction that is outside the office and outside the usual clinical um, uh, structure. And marketing is really going into social media. And, you know, as an agency, we're being encouraged by our marketing consultants to, to use this, you know, to, to do Google, to do LinkedIn, you know, um, to have a Twitter account, put everything up on Twitter. And um, it seems like it's going faster than we can keep up with it. It is, but if we disengage from it, we uh, risk becoming irrelevant. Right, and right. So that, I think that that tension between um, being disengaged versus um, being overly engaged but at risk uh, is where the field is at. And I, I don't see that changing anytime soon. The, the technologies are so uh, widespread and ever-evolving, uh, and our ethical and regulatory structure has, uh, is nowhere near keeping up with it right now. So the burden really does fall to the individual clinician to be informed and savvy and, uh, and careful about managing these uh, issues uh, in practice with individual patients and also how, uh, <clears throat> how the practice is um, marketed and, um, and depicted online. <clears throat> Yeah, I I know. It's um I you know, I think back to what it must have been like when people first started using the telephone and how revolutionary <laughs> that was for um for a doctor for for a doctor to make some type of a diagnostic evaluation based on what somebody at home was saying about the person's symptoms. You know, I'm sure that was revolutionary that you mean you you just talked to somebody on the phone, you didn't go to their house and visit them. I kind of think yes. we're kind of in the same kind right. of uh and there's a constant process, push pull. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking about how you know when when um, when the telephone became available, then dinner could be uh, interrupted, and if it's for right. a, a physician, dinner might be interrupted by a patient. And then there's a, a pushback against that kind of thing, which I think came in the form of the answering machine, <laughs> right. uh, where uh, calls get screened. And uh, now we're at the point where virtually nobody picks up uh, the telephone on the first call unless they know exactly who it is. Right. So um, it's easy to call people now. They have multiple numbers, but we also have caller ID and ways of screening it out. And I think that there's, go there's a very similar kind of push-pull going on uh, uh, on the Internet as well. Right, right. And, you know, I think um, the other thing, too, is that, you know, we're talking about, like, we use video conferencing at Westbridge, and, and so having that immediate... Um, being able to look at somebody, being able to talk to them in real time, it's very dynamic. Um, yet the other side of that is is that if if we're talking to somebody in Montana and we're in Massachusetts, then our license is in Massachusetts, but the patient is in Montana. So, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's just there's just so much to take into consideration. Yes, and I, I think uh, you know telemedicine and um, Skype are raising uh, related but somewhat different issues uh, as well in the last 
six months or so, I've started doing Skype sessions with patients. I have not yet yet gotten to the point where I do initial evaluations by Skype, but I have uh, a growing number of patients who I treated at one time in person in Boston, formed uh, you know a significant treatment alliance with them, and now they've moved in some cases to places where they don't have access to uh, the same kind of psychiatric care that they want, in some cases outside the country, in some cases in other parts of the country. Uh, and it's, I look at my Skype account now, and it's becoming concerning because there's really a growing number of, of patients that I'm interacting with in, uh, in that way. Uh, it really brings back the, uh, the whole question about uh, the home visit that physicians right. stopped for about a century. And it looks like it's coming back now because when you get onto a Skype session with somebody sitting in their pajamas with their legs folded on the couch in their, uh, in their living room, it feels very different than having them in your office. I think it's a whole other area of, uh, of Internet medical ethics that is uh, still underexplored. Yeah. yeah. I, but on the other hand, you get to see the person in their environment. You, you know, you, you can make some, you can do some assessment of that, too. So there's some positive to that as well. Absolutely, you know? and I think that's what's difficult about all of these uh, these issues we've been discussing today is that there there can be many positives. In one case, I did a Skype session with a patient who was always angry and shut down. I treated her for years in my office, and I always had the impression of her as being tense, uptight, angry. And then I saw her in her home environment on Skype when she had moved out of the country, and I'd never seen her looking so happy and relaxed, and it was it was very reassuring. Well, thank you so much for spending this hour with us and for um, really challenging us to think about some things that are pretty provocative. So um, thank you, Dr. Brindell. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And have a great week, everybody, and um, hopefully we'll uh, talk to you next week at one hour at a time. Appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.